the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you ever waited or wallowed through the slough of despond? Have you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? And did you ever feel like you were in that slough with him? Do you know what this is like? Many people read the Pilgrim's Progress, and early on, a Christian falls into this miry pit. And it's always fun to hear discussions about what people think this is. But John Bunyan, the writer, tells us it's the slough of despond. It's despondency. Um, and here's, here's how it goes. Uh, he and Pliable set out from the city of destruction. And it says that they came near a miry slough that was in the middle of the plain. And being careless, they both fell into the bog, which was called the slough of despond. Here they floundered for a time in the mud. Soon Christian because of his burden, began to sink. Remember, Christian's wearing this big burden on his back. It's his awareness of his guilt of sin. And this causes him to sink. The weight of the burden, the weight of his overwhelming guilt for his sin makes the slough hard to get through. Pliable is angry at this turn of events. So much for the heaven you talked about. And he gets out easily. He just gets out easily and goes back to the city of destruction because he has no burden. He has no guilt for his sin. There's nothing holding him down in darkness. He just gets up and out. But Christian wallows for a bit. He struggles. It continues and it says, Christian left to flounder in the slough alone, struggled on toward the far side, toward the wicket gate. But though he struggled with all his strength and skill, he could not get out because of his burden. Then help shows up. Love in Pilgrim's Progress, sometimes just things just show up and help is helpful. So help uh, pulls him out and sends Christian off to the wicked gate. <laughs> now, the narrator, John Bunyan, interrupts the story to ask help what is up with this help me out with this slough to spawn why is this here and this is how help answers he says this miry slough is such a place that can not be mended it is the low ground where the scum and filth of a guilty conscience caused by conviction of sin continually gather. And for this reason, it is called the slough of despond. As sinners are awakened by the Holy Spirit and see their vile condition, there arise in their souls many doubts and fears and many discouraging apprehensions all of which merge and settle in this place. And that is the reason for this marshy slough. Your doubts, your fears, your discouraging apprehensions. You set off to follow Christ and suddenly you become very keenly aware that you're unworthy of the kingdom of God. You're a sinner. And if we are sensitive to the leading of God and the spirit, we can become very sensitive. And if we do not watch, then the devil will take advantage of our feelings of conviction and pervert them into feelings of guilt 
And then we can feel bogged down in the mire. That's despondency on one hand. And this is our sixth passion. There are steps to avoid this passion, um, but we often don't see the steps. There were steps in the slough of despond that Christian missed because he's being careless and he fell in. And then help ended up later saying, some people just never see the steps because it's so foggy there sometimes you just don't see them. We don't have to fall into despondency, but we often do because we're careless and we don't see it. Because despondency settles upon us in ways that don't necessarily manifest themselves with evil activity. It's very much an inward, downward sort of passion, and we can be under it for a while and not recognize it. It's a sneaky, sneaky passion. So, the passions, these are, to review and remind you, the eight cracks of our fallen hearts that the devils love to try to pry open and manipulate to use against us. Passions are not things that we have. Passions are things that have us. The sinful passions make us passive. They make us lack self-direction. And they, uh, they turn us into puppets. Remember that they come to us as thoughts, which is totally innocent. Thoughts come and go. But when we give our consent to the thought, it then latches onto us. It has an opening. It comes into us. And then it becomes sin. We either dwell on the thought as sin or we enact the thought as sin. And then as the sin becomes habitual, the more we give our consent, the more this sin becomes part of our nature until it becomes a second nature, which at which point it becomes a passion. The passions are holding us when we give our consent to them often enough. Knowing the eight passions is about knowing how to identify the tools the devil uses against us so that we can recognize the thoughts and discard them and not let them have ownership over us. Also, brothers and sisters, now that we are on number six, the sixth week into these passions, and many of you have shared how you feel, oh my goodness, I you feel like you're talking about me when you talk about this passion. We've all felt that at some point, unless your heart is really stone hard cold. Um, And I have really felt this heaviness in looking at each one each week. And then you become hyper aware of it the next week, don't you? All of a sudden, like everywhere, like, I am the most apathetic person in the world. You didn't know that until last week, right? Is that anybody relating or anger or greed, all the ones? It just seems to like manifest itself. It gives us awareness of the devil's activity. And this is a good thing. So on one hand, we can be going through this and we can be feeling a certain weight of my, I just can't get my act together. And if you allow it, the devil will use the awareness of sin to drag you down, to burden you so that you sink into the slough of despond. That is demonic. It is not of God when we sink into guilt and we loathe ourselves. This is not of the spirit of God. Rather, we recognize and identify these passions in our lives so that we can come to Jesus, the physician, to heal us. He said, I came for the sinner. I came to those who are sick. I came to give mercy and healing. That was Matthew 9. So a reminder as we come toward the end here, brothers and sisters, let any awareness of sin drive you to the physician. Do not 
be bogged down in the slough of despond. Amen? Amen. Okay. So the passion of despondency. Here it is in a nutshell. Despondency is feeling downcast. It's feeling disheartened. And it's feeling hopeless. Downcast, your mood goes down, your energy goes down, you feel sorrow. Disheartened, you lose strength, you lose courage, nothing seems to matter anymore. And hopelessness, it seems like there's no end in sight, there's no rescue, and you begin to wallow and sink into the mire. That's despondency. Now, I struggled and wrestled with the right word. You guys know I, I'm, I really try to choose words carefully. Like last week, we talked about apathy rather than sloth, because I feel like apathy more properly addresses the range of the passion, right? Where sloth makes you just think of slowness. Apathy includes indifference and jumping and bailing out of things that you should be committing to. Well, I struggled with this one because um, a lot of the lists of the seven deadly sins or the original list of the eight passions used it. And, and, and depending on the translations that come to us, you know that all the old church fathers were writing in Greek and then later some of them in Latin. So all of these are translations and they weren't always consistent. Some of it was just sorrow. Some of it was grief. Some of it was despair. Some of it was despondency. Some of it was depression. Like there were different words out there. And what is the word that best encapsulates this passion that we must be aware of. I landed on despondency. Um, now, one of the confusing things is that later on the lists, you remember there's eight passions, but there's seven deadly sins. Later on, apathy and despondency got merged as one. They were treated together. So I found out that John of Sinai, whose writings I really enjoy uh, for the most part, um, he, he started, I read his chapter on despondency, thinking, oh, great, this is great resource material, only to find out a few pages in, he's talking about apathy. So I was like, oh, that's not helpful. So it got a little bit confusing. So in time, they began to treat apathy and despondency together. And you can see why. Apathy is this, I don't want to do anything. And despondency can lead us to not wanting to do anything, right? So um, in time, they just kind of got treated together. And in despondency's place, envy was introduced. Now, envy and despondency go together. We will talk about both tonight. But I say all this to say, I want to clarify. Apathy is this lack of energy due to laziness, but despondency will also feel lack of energy, but it's due to sadness. Okay, so these are coming from different places. Um, so if you like the word dejection better or despair better, you can use those. I'm using despondency. Um, okay, now the, uh, the Greek word in the original Greek list of the eight passions was lupe. Lupe means grief or sorrow. That's what it means. So I think despondency kind of includes grief and sorrow and includes all the other hopelessness and struggles that we go through. So here's, here's where you see it in the Bible, the word lupe. It's Second uh, Corinthians 7, verse 10. And notice there's going to be, there's two kinds of lupe. There's good lupe and there's bad lupe. There's good grief, there's bad grief. Good grief, right? Bad grief. There's, um, there's good despondency, there's bad despondency in short. Okay, so here we go. Second Corinthians 7, 10. For godly grief produces a repentance 
that leads to salvation without regret. It's good to grieve your sins. It's good to feel the weight of them because it will lead you to repentance without regret. But there's also another kind of despondency. Whereas worldly lupe, worldly grief, produces death. Christian and pilgrim's progress is falling into the latter. He sets out on his journey because of godly grief, but it's worldly grief that causes him to sink. Both of these griefs are illustrated during Holy Week between Peter and Judas. Both of them deny Christ. But both of them have very different responses to their grief. Peter holds to godly grief, and Peter uses his recognition that he betrayed Christ to weep bitterly, it says at the end of Matthew 26. He wept bitterly. And we know Peter's restored to Christ in John 21. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Feed my sheep. Peter's restored godly grief brings him to repentance. But Judas succumbs to despondency and despair. He succumbs to worldly grief, and its end is death. Judas, on betraying Christ, goes into the temple, Matthew 27. He throws the money to them and says, I betrayed innocent blood. Like, too late. And Judas goes out and hangs himself. He does not confess to God. He confesses to humanity instead. And grief takes him down. So there's good grief. There's bad grief. We're trying to look out for the bad grief. Uh, Despondency is pain. Despondency is felt as pain. And it's pain from fullness of the soul. And it's pain from emptiness of the soul. There's two ways that we'll feel this pain. The pain of fullness is being full of regret for something in the past. It's full of sorrow and guilt for your sin that just weighs you down. It's full of self-loathing. This is the pain of despondency that fills the soul. Regret, guilt, self-loathing. It pulls us downward and inward. We feel cast down like Abel, no, Cain. Cain, after he was rejected by God, like by God's, by his offering was rejected by God. He's like, why is your face cast down? Um, it pulls us downward and then it pulls us inward. And we don't want to be around people. But there's also the pain of emptiness, which pulls us backward. It keeps us back from moving on. The pain of emptiness is felt as nostalgia for what is no more. We look at the past, and we want the past, and we don't want the present. That's despondency. It leads us to living in the past, nostalgia. It's longing for what we've lost, a childhood, a family member, um, your youth, your beauty. It's, it's longing for what's lost, so it's holding you back. It's looking at you, you look backward. Um, the other emptiness might be hopelessness. You're devoid of hope. The future looks bleak. This is all despondency. The problem with despondency is that it leads, as you just read in 2 Corinthians 7.10, worldly grief, despondency, produces death. Spiritual death is the problem with despondency. 
This is not just mere pity party. I just feel down. I'm just kind of that emo type. I just want everyone to know I'm wearing my heart on my sleeve. Like This is worse than that because it will bring you to spiritual death. It will ruin you. It will devastate you. John Chrysostom put it like this. A terrible thing, indeed, a terrible thing is uncontrolled sadness. And it leads to spiritual death. You just read that in 2 Corinthians. Later in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian gets stronger. He's moving closer to heaven. But you remember what happens after he he leads his companion, hopeful, off of the path. And then they get lost. And then they get caught in a storm. And then they stay the night on this little hillside. And then in the morning when they wake up, they find out that they're on giant despair's territory. And he captures them. And he throws them into prison where it's dark. He doesn't feed them. He berates them and abuses them and beats them. And he encourages them to take their life. Giant despair. It's round two of despondency for Christian. And this is the spiritual death. It throws us in prison. It berates us. It discourages us. It punishes us. Despondency is a whip to the soul. So first, problem. Um, so that's despondency, is spiritual death, and we're going to see this in three ways. How is it spiritual death? First, despondency imprisons the soul in nostalgia, as we'd mentioned. It imprisons you in nostalgia. The problem with nostalgia is that it lives in the past and it rejects the present that God gives. Jesus said in Luke 9, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God moves forward. It's in the present. The past is not where the Christian lives. We don't hold on to it in nostalgia. Nostalgia is a problem because it presents the past as better than it actually was. It's like looking at what used to be in your life with rose-colored glasses. But the problem with these rose-colored glasses is while it makes the past look really good, it darkens the way you see the future. If I'm living in nostalgia, the present is never good enough. Remember the Israelites in Exodus chapter 16? They had been liberated from their slavery in Egypt. They were backed up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies coming after them. They see God miraculously part it through Moses. They sing song and dance and celebrate and worship his salvation on the other side of the Red Sea as it closes over the Egyptians. They are thirsty. There's nothing to drink. Moses puts a tree in the water. They have, free, we have water to drink. Things are going great. And then three months later... They complain. This is Exodus 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Really? You were okay there? When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. That's what you did. You sat around by meat pots, filling yourself all day. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. 
In another place, they talk about the leeks and the melons and the onions and the cucumbers that they enjoyed in Egypt. It's, it's as if they forgot that slaves weren't fed that well, that their lives were death in Egypt. And now they're in the wilderness, they're in this present, and nostalgia is calling them back to something else. And they're looking at the present and saying, this manna, which by the way, it says it tasted like honey. It's probably like a graham cracker. It's probably awesome. And it was totally nutritious. But like, eh, we misremember everything about that back there. We think it was so much better. That's the problem with nostalgia is it blinds us to what God is doing here and now. And that makes it a prison. Despondency is a prison because it tells us that our best days are behind us. But in Christ, he says that your best days are ahead of you. You can't have both. The Christian does not look backward and say, those are my best days. That's living in regret about what you've become. For the Christian, our best days are always ahead of us. But despondency will not let us see it. So it says, if your best days are behind you, why move on? Stay where you are, wallow in your sorrow, and just be a pouty fish. It's actually a really good book about that. Pout, pout fish. Anyone read that to their grandkids or their kids? Well, of course you have. Yeah. Okay. I just, I just totally forgot about that book and just popped into my head. That's great. Uh, second reason despondency, spiritual death, is that despondency punishes the soul in guilt. Despondency punishes the soul in guilt. God does not punish your soul with guilt. That is not our Heavenly Father. That's despondency. That's the passions of the devils taking control of our soul. Despondency will say that we are not worthy of happiness. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been with Christians and felt like you're not worthy of the company? You're not worthy of the joy of the Lord because of the things that I have done, who I've been? I can't believe I've done this. Despondency is doing that. It's, it's locking you down and it's whipping you and punishing you like giant despair to Christian in the prison. You're imprisoned and now you're being beaten. John Chrysostom powerfully said this. He said, sadness does not allow the mind to say its prayers with its usual gladness of heart, nor permit it to rely on the comfort of reading the scriptures, nor allow it to be quiet and gentle with the brethren. It makes the soul impatient and rough in all the duties of work and devotion. And as all wholesome counsel is lost... And steadfastness of heart is destroyed, it makes the feelings almost mad and drunk and crushes and overwhelms them with penal despair. Did you hear that? He's saying despondency makes the feelings mad and drunk and crushes and overwhelms them with penal despair. Penal means punishment. It's legal term for punishment. Then he concludes, oh yeah, that was, yeah. That's what despondency does. Is it says, you deserve this. You don't deserve to get out of this. This is where you belong. Despondency then says, and you might as well stay there because you will never change. This is your lot. 
really important quote I ran into by Theophan. Remember Theophan? My little buddy with our prayer series. I like Theophan. He said this, um, if the disease of sin is normal, then it can never be cured. Stop and ask, is the sin in my life normal? Despondency says, yes, you're a loser. You will never grow out of this. You're stuck in this. It's normal. Let it have its way. I've been there. I don't know if you have too. Theophan powerfully reminds us that if the disease of sin in us is normal, then it cannot be cured. It means God made us that way. Uh Uh-uh. So he continues, thus it would remain always, no matter how hard you worked to rid yourself of it. If you accept this thought, you will lose heart and say to yourself, this is how it is. For this is that woeful despair, despondency, which once it has been introduced into people, they have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all manner of uncleanness. There he's citing Ephesians 4 verse 19. And then he concludes with this great reminder. Maintain the conviction that our disorderliness is not natural to us. God did not, in other words, make me to sin. He made me to bear his image and to be one with him forever. Do not let despondency say, this is just how it is. Because despondency's goal is to make you give up. So despondency imprisons us in nostalgia. Despondency punishes the soul in guilt. And third, despondency berates the soul. Says that you are worthless. It berates the soul in envy. This is when you've reached the bottom of the bottom of despondency. Is when envy rises up. You've gone low, 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 and now there's so much self-loathing that all you have left is feelings about the people around you. Either you loathe that they're happy or you loathe that you're not like them. I found this by John Damascus. He um, identified four kinds of pain, and it was really insightful. He said that there are four kinds of pain. There's grief, what we're talking about. Distress, which I think is what happens when despondency... You have good grief and bad grief, but then distress is when despondency really takes over. There's distress. Then envy. Then compassion, which is when you know you're coming out of despondency. So here's how he defines them. He says, there are four kinds of pain. Grief, distress, envy, compassion. Grief is a pain which makes one speechless. Distress is a pain which oppresses. Envy is a pain which arises from another's good fortune. I can't stand that Tyler is succeeding there. It's pain. But then compassion is pain that arises from another's misfortune. Ah, it hurts that Billy has lost her father. So despondency 
is at its worst when we start to feel pain, not just for ourselves, not just for our sin, not just for these conditions or circumstances, but now we feel pain that other people don't suffer with us. That's when despondency hits its worst. It encourages our, our self-loathing, our self, self-loathing encourages us to loathe others, to, to compare really ourselves with others. And so what ends up happening is despondency becomes powerful when you are not feeling great about yourself and you're looking at what other people are doing in their lives and then suddenly you're hit with this pain of, I really am a loser. I mean, Pastor Dan right now is bicycling 60 miles and I can't listen to Pastor Brandon for 60 minutes. <laughs> um, these people are in Portugal right now, and I am in Twin Peaks. Like it, it, when you feel bad, when you, you, despondency wants you to compare yourself, so you feel even worse about yourself. So that then you then turn that on other people. Like, well, it's just because they're they're greedy and they're using their money the wrong time, and he should be in church and blah blah. And then you start getting this. This is not good, friends. It berates you. Despondency berates you so that you turn into an envious being. Ask Abel and Cain. (laughs) Cain envied Abel's success, so Cain kills Abel. He compared himself. Ask David and Saul. Saul envied David's success, so Saul hounds and persecutes David. This is why Proverbs 27.4 says, Yeah, wrath is cruel and anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Or some translations put it envy. And I looked it up in the original wording, envy works. So there you go. Who can stand before envy? That led Basil the Great to say, Envy is the most savage form of hatred. So it started with the self-pity party, and now it turned to all of hell entering the heart and seething and simmering at everyone around you. So how do we overcome despondency? Where is the light? Where is the virtue that lifts us? Where is help to pull his, to reuse his hand to pull Christian out of the slough of despond? You might be tempted, like I was at first, to say, oh, joy overcomes despondency. Have you ever been sad before and heard an annoying Christian say, don't be sad, be happy? It does not help. I mean, obviously, like, if I could just be happy right now, I would choose to be happy right now. It doesn't help, and it makes things worse. Just be joyful. No. See, here's the thing. Joy is not the key to overcoming despondency. Joy is the result of overcoming despondency. Okay, it's the reward. So how do we then conquer despondency so that we can enter into its opposite of joy? Where's the path out? Where's the light in the darkness? Where are the steps out of the well? I believe that hope is the virtue we need to overcome despondency. It's hope. If we keep thinking about it, despondency is is pushing us downward, it's pushing us inward, it's pushing us backward. But hope really reverses all of this. Hope tells us to look forward. Hope tells us to live outward. Hope tells us to live upward. 
Everything about hope is working the other direction of despondency. And despondency is a loss of hope. It's a feeling that things will not change, but hope says, oh, yes, it will. Because hope, brothers and sisters, hope is not the way culture uses it. And I find that we, we, I myself, I try so hard to find a different word and I'm not always successful. Um, But we use the word hope to mean wishful thinking. Am I going to see you next week? I sure hope so. That is not theological hope. Can you imagine if God's like, or Paul's like, our hope is in heaven. I mean, I'm wishfully thinking it is. Like, that is not theological hope. Theological hope is a confidence in an expected outcome. We expect this outcome and we have confidence in that outcome because we know the one from whom that outcome is coming from. That's what hope is. It is basically assuredness, confidence, I just said that. It's, it's security. And this solid ground, hope is solid ground, whereas despondency is a slough. It's a bog. It's a mire. It is not solid ground. We need our feet on solid ground. We need hope to tell us and to ensure our sadness that it's not going to last forever. It's when we lose hope that the sadness becomes despondency. You remember the psalmist in Psalm 13? He said, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, will my enemies go on saying there is no hope for him? How long, O Lord, something else. And then one more, how long, O Lord. There's four how longs in the opening lines of Psalm 13. This is a psalmist on the brink of despair. He feels like the pain will last forever. And he needs God to say, assuredly not. Hang in there. Hope is strengthened by looking forward, upward, and outward. So let's close by looking at these. Hope is strengthened by looking forward, upward, and outward. So if you want to turn around with me, I'm going to go to Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3. Hope looks forward. Hope looks forward. Philippians 3. So here's the Apostle Paul talking about something that could have ended up becoming nostalgia or regret. But he says, I'm not looking back at what I've lost. I'm looking forward at what I'm gaining. It's a wonderful passage, especially when you look at this in the light of despondency. Philippians 3, verse 7. So after he had just given his pedigree of all these great, amazing things he was as a Pharisee, the top of the top, and just basically had the world going for him, he then says in Philippians 3, 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. What? He's suffered the loss of everything he once was, everything he once had. That is a time for despondency to make you live in the regret of, I used to be an amazing person. Now, you know people like this. They're always living in the past and what they used to be. It's like, is not Christ in you or what? Paul refused to be that person. He said, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Look, these losses aren't losses. It was an opening for me to more properly apprehend and attain Christ. That's how Paul sees it. And so when we have grief and we have loss and we have sadness, we need to look at that emptiness and say, this is the time for more of Christ in my life. This is where he's doing, this is what he's doing to bring more of himself into me. Look forward, not backward. So this is what Paul is looking for, that I may know, this is verse 10, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Where are Paul's eyes? I used to be an amazing Pharisee. I was at the feet of Gamaliel. People would flock from all around to hear me teach and love. Not at all. Paul's not even like, well, I mean, you know, if ideally I'd still be with Christ and be doing that. He's completely severed that past. And his eyes are on the resurrection I get to attain this with Christ. That's where he's going. Everything else doesn't matter because that is the only thing that matters. Our resurrection in Christ. Our true life. So then he comes to the more popular verses. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this resurrection or am already perfect, but I press on. By the way, that word press on is the exact same Greek word he uses in verse 6 when he says that he was a persecutor of the church. The same way he pressed on the church, he's now pressing on forward. But I press on to make it, I believe he's referring to the resurrection here, I press on to make the resurrection my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on, same word again, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. This is a life fighting against despondency. This is hope in action, in power. Then he concludes, let those of us who are mature think this way. How do mature believers think? They look forward. Resurrection is in their windshield. Second, hope looks upward. Hope looks upward. Despondency pulls us downward. Hope looks upward. I'm going to be in Psalm 32 and 51. Hope looks upward. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Um, there's a word I need to introduce you to. I've, I've shared this with you last year, but I know a year, almost six, it's more than a year ago, so almost 60 some sermons ago. You know, I expect you to remember all of this. Um, goodness gracious. Talking and finding Psalm 32 is not fun. Okay. We go. Um, the word is harmalipi. Harmalipi. It's a Greek word. It's a compound Greek word, and it means joy making sorrow. 
It was invented by John of Sinai because there was no word in existence to describe the Christian's experience in repenting and confessing their sin. So he said, what the Christian experiences when they confess their sins and repent and turn toward God is harmalipi, joy-making sorrow. You see, there's the godly grief that turns us to repentance. And it's when I recognize my sin and I come before God and I say, I'm so sorry about this. He gives us joy when we empty our filth. This is the way true confession works. But despondency wants to come in and say, oh, you know how mad God is about that? He said it was the last time he would forgive you that one. You're in trouble now. How do you call yourself a Christian and you keep on losing your cool toward those people? Really? Like Christ is really in you? And then suddenly, confession can become intimidating. You don't want to repent. You're scared of God. But for the true experience of repentance and confession for the true Christian, it's, it's for the Christian not plagued by despondency, I should say, it's harmalipi joy-making sorrow. Uh, I think Atticus, well, he's not in here right now, but Atticus, my son, perfectly illustrates this because he's the kid who cries over a lot of things. He's very sensitive. Um, but then uh, so many times we see him just like tears coming down the face and he's in pain. His heart is hurt. And then all Brittany has to do is like spin it in a different light. And while the tears are still streaming, he starts breaking into laughter. That is joy-making sorrow. John Cassian put it like this. The only, but John Cassian was evag. You, could, you guys, are, I just, I love helping you guys make links. Remember um, Macarius the Great? Um, his disciple was Evagrius, the solitary, and then his disciple was John Cassian. So there's a little link for you. John Cassian said that the only form of dejection, despondency, we should cultivate is the sorrow which goes with repentance for sin and is accompanied by hope in God. This godly sorrow, there he's quoting 2 Corinthians, this godly sorrow nourishes the soul through the hope engendered by repentance, and it is mingled with joy. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is what Lent is about. It's about recognizing that these passions are real. We've succumbed to these in many ways, but we have joy in coming to our Father and saying, yep, I need your help again. And he fills us with joy. It's been said by others, and I somewhat like the saying, that the counselor's couch is becoming crowded because the Christian's confession is becoming empty. A culture that doesn't confess their sins or repent is a culture without joy. And here we are. Just look around. So Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed. That is the word that also means happy. Good fortune to the one who confesses, whose sin is covered. So then he describes what happened when he didn't confess. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But, in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's why we can say, blessed is a man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 51 also similarly says, that's 51 verse 8. This is, remember, this is David's great confession after his sin with Bathsheba. It's 51.8 says, Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Right? There's a crushing when we recognize our sin, but now he's saying, look, heal me. Let me hear joy and gladness. And then, of course, we usually confess this prayer, this part of the prayer, every week outside of Lent. Um, 51 verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. This is what confession does. And so we come to the Lord recognizing that he's not mad. He's ready to heal us. But we have to, like the man with the withered hand, we have to stretch out our hand and show him where we're hurt. Or there's no joy of healing. Hamalipi, joy-making sorrow. So hope looks forward, resurrection. Hope looks upward, confession. And third, hope looks outward, compassion. Hope looks outward, compassion. This is, lastly, Matthew 14. Um, Compassion pulls us out of self-pity. Because despondency wants to just kind of sink and wallow in myself. But compassion forces us to look at others. It causes us... Remember, despondency feels pain about ourselves, and then it goes into envy and feels pain about others' fortune. But compassion causes us to relocate our pain for the sake of others. It's healing in that it gets the pain moving somewhere else. And so in Matthew 14, Jesus had just heard about the death of his cousin John the Baptist brutally and without any dignity beheaded because of a drunken party in which he made a foolish promise. And Jesus, of course, cannot help but feel the pain of his own coming end. And so in Matthew 14, verse 13, he just heard this. So Matthew 14, 12, his disciples came and took the body of John and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Then Matthew 14, verse 13 Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. They needed some time to have some godly grief. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw the great crowd and threw up his arms and said, I need personal time. I quit. Let's be honest. That's Pastor Brandon's first reaction. Instead, when despondency wanted to have him, there was a moment, an opening. He sees the crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick and then ends up feeding the 5,000. Brothers and sisters, it's really hard, but this is one of the most effective ways outside of ourselves is to demonstrate compassion for other people. Do something small for someone else. It makes the prison you're stuck in a little bit bigger. And that can mean everything to let the rays of hope come in. 
Jesus shows us that it's possible. It's also possible because if we do confess our sins, we recognize that our Father is compassionate toward us. And we recognize that he's compassionate toward us. It frees us. Wait, God doesn't think I'm a loser. I don't have to think everyone else is a loser. You mean God has hope for me in my lowest point? I can give hope to other people because they're not as bad as me. Suddenly, compassion can now go outward as we taste it from the Father. That's Psalm 103. It talks about his great compassion for those. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So, brothers and sisters, in the face of despondency, when the thought wants to have your consent and take over your heart and squeeze your soul, look forward, look upward, and look outward. Because God is for us. He is not against us. Lord, who can discern his errors? Declare us innocent from hidden faults. Hold also your servant back from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over us. Then shall we be innocent and blameless of great transgression. O Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer.